Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. I'm going to read the whole section to us, and then we'll begin breaking it down. All right. Chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, like I just said at the beginning, was before we got recording here, there is too much here for us to cover in the hour that we have tonight. And I, I pray that you're able to be here next week as we continue into this more. Or if not, go online and keep up with the studies that are on the website. This is going to be a lot of fun because if you're willing, we're about to move into a realm of Christianity that a lot of Christians don't understand. Now, this doesn't make us better than them. This doesn't make us the special group if we know this and they don't. I just want you to see that there is something about walking in Christ and actually being in Christ and then living out of that that a lot of Christians never, ever get to. And we're going to deal with why as well in our study tonight. My prayer is that we, as we start moving into this, God would actually help you to be curious enough that he would put in your heart a hunger for what he's talking about here, what Paul was specifically praying for. Now, you know me. I'm going to stay biblical. I'm going to stay grounded in what only the scripture says, and that's all. Don't get afraid that all of a sudden Jim's talking about this spiritual realm and walking in the spirit. Because there are those that talk about things of the spirit and they go off and off the deep end. They go unbiblical. We're not going to go off a deep end. But as you've heard me say before, we're so afraid of going out on a limb theologically, we don't even climb the tree anymore. I want to climb the tree. I want to go where God wants to go. Paul prayed specifically. We're going to see tonight for three specific things. We're only going to have time to get into one of them. But he prayed specifically for three specific things for Christians, and I want to start diving into that. And so I don't want to rush through this and move on, because there's a ton in chapter 4 that I can't wait to tell you about either. But for tonight, let's just take a look at this. Now, in order to do that, we have to go back to verses 11, 12, and 13. I know I just teased you with verses 14 and following, but to really understand them, we've got to finish up where we left off last Tuesday. Remember last Tuesday in verse 10, we looked at how God's intent that was through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the spiritual authorities in the heavenly places. And look at verses 11, 12, and 13. We're going to hit these quick because they actually tie into what's going on here. And then he says, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is, which is your glory. Now, look closely at the, at the tense of verse 11. Look at the tense of Paul's statement. What tense is it in? Past tense. He said that something has been realized already through Jesus Christ. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. All right. God's purpose, his eternal purpose has already been realized in Jesus. Now, you'll say, wait a minute, Jim. OK, what does that mean? Well, let's start taking a look at least a part of that. All right. Go back with me to Ephesians chapter one. Look at verses 15 through 23. Another prayer of Paul that he's already prayed for the, the Christians here in this in this book. Chapter one, verse 15, it says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened or opened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. We'll come back to that a little bit later tonight. According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him. See all this past tense. He raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, 
not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now you're going to see that a lot of what Paul says here is connected with what he says in chapter three in the section we're going to start getting into tonight. So what is we just summarize this? He was, what he's saying is this. He goes, my prayer is that you Christians would have your eyes opened to understand all that is now available, all that is now yours because of what has already been realized in God through Jesus Christ, through his death, through his resurrection and all of that, through him being raised and seated in the heavenly realms. And now Jesus is what? According to this, he's above what? Everything. Everything. He is above all authority. And you're going to see even he says this, everything that has been named. We'll get into that in just a little bit. The interesting part of naming things. We're going to get into some of that. But Jesus has been given all authority and he's above everything now. All right. Jesus is above all things, all power in this life and the next. And he has now also been given authority in and through the church. Because we see here at the end of this section in verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So here Paul's saying, guys, there is a huge thing that has been done. And most Christians walk around and just say, I just thank God I'm saved. I'm just glad my name's written in the book of life. And they have no idea that if that's all there was, why are you still here? I mean, if that's all God was going to do is save you, and now you can go to heaven, why are you still here? You say, I didn't say I wanted to be, you know, because he has a purpose he wants to accomplish, not only in us, but through us in this life that ties into the one to come. So, folks, Paul says, my prayer is that you have your eyes open to the fact that this is really going on and what's available. And I want you to understand something. This Jesus that you have put your faith in, he is now head over everything. Hebrews just clarifies it and says, by the way, it's not mean God the Father. But he's head over all things because Jesus is God. And he's been given to who? To the church. We have been connected with him in a way. We have been coupled with him. In which now that authority that he's given, been given is somehow some way connected with us. And he's got a purpose and a plan. And as we saw at the section we just looked at just a second ago in verse 11, his purpose has been realized through Jesus and his resurrection. And now we want to know what it is so that we can live according to what God's trying to do. First part is this, though. All authority has been given to him. Go to Matthew chapter 28. Most people can quote where Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples. But actually, it starts in verse 18. And look how Jesus words it. And Jesus came and said to them, what? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So here's what he said. He says, okay, all authority has been given. This is after he's already died. He's risen. He's on the earth you know, for the 40 days. And he's about to send to the Father. And he says to them, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Now here's what I'm going to have you do. You don't even fully understand how this all works yet, but that's a part of the process of you growing in me and your sanctification and your increasing knowledge of what's been accomplished. You're probably still a little bit clueless, but wait in Jerusalem until you receive the Holy Spirit and he'll help you. He'll teach you. He'll guide you. He'll remind you. He'll walk you through this. My, my power will be in you and I'll start shaping you into what I have in mind. I predestined to conform you into my image. I've got a plan and a purpose. So here's what I want you to do now. As my hands and my feet, I want you to go into all the world and make disciples. Now, Here's where we have a tendency, and I'm going to try not to preach on this too long because I don't want to get off my topic too much. Too many of us at that point say, well, Jesus has told us to go make disciples. And then we run off to go and try and do it. And you'll even have certain preachers that tell you, here's how you're to do it. But if we're willing to be patient and let the Spirit of God show us what that really means, you're going to find that, yes, we are to be a part of God's purpose and His plan. But His 
way of accomplishing that, how he wants to, us to use us to make disciples, is going to look different for Dave than it will for Niggy. Yet we try to make Dave and Niggy both be the same type of Christian. Do you see what I'm saying? The preachers say, y'all should be. You ever heard those kind of preaching? You all, if you love the Lord, y'all would be. And they try to put this blanket yoke on us all. And we all try to go out knocking on doors because the preacher said we're supposed to be out there making disciples. No, no, no. He's going to be using us to accomplish his purposes. And some he's been given this, he's given this responsibility, he's, others these. And we need to find out how we fit into God's plan and his purpose. We need to be hungry for, Lord, what is the role you have for me? And not only that, where would you have me accomplish that role? Because just as Paul knew that God had called him to go preach to the Gentiles, in Acts chapter 16, he tried to go into Asia. But what happened? He was listening to the Spirit. And the Spirit said, that's not exactly it. He didn't sit home and say, oh, wait till I get a word from the Lord. No, God had already put it on his heart to go preach the good news of the gospel and the good news to the Gentiles. So he tries to go into Mysia. But what's he doing? He's listening as he goes. And the Spirit said, it's not Mysia. Then later on, as you know the story, a man in Macedonia comes to him in a dream and says, come preach the gospel to us. But that doesn't mean he assumed he knew what he was to do. He just knew he was to go to Macedonia. As he went into Macedonia, if you look at him, he's still listening for the Spirit. By the way, that's chapter 8, or not chapter 8, principle 8 in the God, principles of God-centered book that's coming out. Learning to recognize where God's Spirit is working and where people are responding. What does Paul do? He goes into Macedonia and he's now looking for where God's at work. He's not going to go try to do it for God. He's looking for, okay, God, you said Macedonia. What's the next step of the process? Folks, I want to just run off for the next hour or two weeks and talk to you about this. But if you look at the scriptures, you'll see all along, God gives us a glimpse of where he wants us to go. He puts it in our heart. Yet as we go is how he teaches us. Even Samuel was told, I want you to go to, uh, to, to Bethlehem and I want you to go and get, grab Jesse and have him get his sons because I'm going to have you anoint one of his sons. And then when God says this next, I'll show you what you're to do. Was he told who it, which one it was? No. God took him through a process and finally showed him who it was. Because even Samuel had to learn to listen as he was led of the Spirit. For Christians, what we've done is we've heard the glimpse of what God has said going to all the world. And then from there, we've tried to go do it without learning to listen. And we wonder why it's so hard. We wonder why we're not seeing any evidence of God's Spirit working in us. We wonder why, it, it, you say your yoke is easy, Lord, and your burden is light, but man, this, this Christian life is hard. Part of the reason is you're wearing a yoke that someone else told you to wear, and it's not the yoke that Jesus has for you. At the same time, you assumed you knew what God wanted, and you heard the first part and took off. Remember back in chapter 22 of Luke, in verse 7, Jesus turns to Peter and John and says, Go, make preparations for us to eat the Passover. By that point, they had wisened up and they don't move. And they say, where do you want us to make preparations for us to eat the Passover? And you can almost picture Jesus saying, good for you. Hey, here's how it's going to go. You go into the city. You'll find a man carrying a jar of water. Follow him. Whatever house he goes into, you go into that house. You go to the master. Here's what you even say to the master of the house. And you will, he'll lead you to an upper room and you'll find it all furnished. Folks, let me ask you a question. Is that what you're experiencing in your walk with Jesus? Or are you experiencing the, well, Jesus said to go do it, and I'm trying to go do it, but it just doesn't seem to be working. All authority has been given to him, and you have now been coupled with him. But he never intended you to go do this thing on your own, ever. He's got a specific plan for you. And you just got to find out, Ron, can we just say that you're different? <laughs> yeah, his wife says, yeah. She says yes. Good. Don't let the church, <laughs> he says, how do you? Don't let the church shape you into its mold. You find out why God made Ron and what God's purposes are for Ron. And you accomplish God's purposes through you the way God made you. And he'll show you what that is. That's not for me to say or anybody else to say. And you won't find any greater joy until you find how it is you're supposed to be doing it as he leads you as you go. So, folks, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me, and now you've been coupled with me. Don't run off. Don't run off. Now, go to Colossians chapter 2. I wanted so bad to preach principles 2 and 3 real quick there, and I stopped. Colossians 2, look at verses 6 through 15. Colossians 2, verses 6 through 15. 
Listen closely to what Paul says here. It's all tied together here into where we're going in this prayer of Paul. Therefore, Christians, Colossians 2 verse 6, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus as the Lord, so walk in Him. Which is what? By faith. Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. Just for the fun of it tonight, I was doing another little study on the side and I ran across that old passage in 1 Samuel chapter 15 where God says, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. I saw something in that passage I've never seen before. We get so caught up in, you know, is God more interested in sacrifice or whether you obey him? Remember that with Samuel? And he says, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. In the ESV and also the Annette Bible, they translate the next verse this way. And presumption is like idolatry. Whoa, that hit me. How much of what we do in the Christian life is presumption? Thinking we know. And how much have we fought with each other in the church because we think we ought to tell you how you ought to be doing it? That's presumption. Remember how the same thing, we already talked about this. That's why Job's friends, even though individually what they said about God, you could back it up with scripture. God said, you didn't say what was right about me because it didn't apply in Job's situation. Their biblical counsel was presumption. God says, I want to be the first word and the last word. That's uh, 1 Samuel 15, right around verses 22 and 23 in that area there. Thank you. All right. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elementary spirit, spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by, the putting off, by putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them. Again, do you see how Paul's saying something here? He doesn't just say Jesus has been given all authority. He's also saying you've got a connection now with him. In Jesus lives the fullness of deity. He's God. Oh, and you've been given fullness in him. There's something that's going on here in the Christian life that's tied to the authority that we have with God that most Christians don't understand. Stick with me. There are some Christians that will start talking about the authority that we have in God, where all of a sudden you can just start telling demons what to do and where to go. No, that's not. That's taking a little bit too far. Because if you remember, as he says in the book of Jude, even the archangel Michael wouldn't bring rebuke against Satan. But he would say, the Lord rebuke you. So if the archangel Michael doesn't say, get out of here, Satan. What does the Bible say? Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee. There's an element of authority that we have that you don't take and now all of a sudden you're the authority. But there is an element of authority that most of us as Christians don't understand and we live weak, defeated lives. Yes, we're going to heaven because that was a gift, but most Christians today, I'm going to ask you an honest question and I don't want you to answer out loud. Alright? But do you struggle internally with the fact that you read about this new person that you are, yet you still see more of the old you than the new you? Have you ever struggled with the fact that how come it talks about how we're being made into the image of Jesus Christ, yet how come I still have to work so hard at being patient and joy, peace and kindness? Fruits of the Spirit? It's magnified in our life now. We didn't recognize it. It's definitely, and that's definitely a big part of it. But now you're going to also see, though, 
that for many Christians, and again, I'm not here to make a blanket judgment statement because honestly, that's between you and God. I'm to just share with you what the scripture says. But if we're honest, most Christians never get past the infant stage. Because there is something now that needs to happen. This is after salvation, and which is Paul's praying for. We're going to get into that tonight. He first prayed that we'd have our eyes opened to the fact that there's something there. His power, the riches of his inheritance, all that kind of stuff. He moves into, in the section we're about to go into in chapter 3, verses 14 and following, into very specifics how he's praying for us in these areas now. He said, first of all, I pray that your eyes would be opened to the fact that, thank God you're saved, but there's more to it than that. Now I'm going to get into the specifics of what it is that I want to see happen in your life as you have your eyes open to this fact. All right. Now, let's start looking at that. Got to stop looking in the mirror. That's a big part of it. That is a big part of it. But don't run ahead of me. All right. <laughs> now, real quickly, verse 12, he just says this because of Jesus's victory. And because he has all authority and because we're in him, we have bold and confident access to God Almighty. Plain and simple. You see that going back in Ephesians chapter 3, uh, verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Again, too many Christians today still feel like approaching God is like going through a minefield to get to him. They tiptoe instead of, in hopes of not messing up. There's still too many Christians that think, well, have I prayed enough? Have I lived right enough? Have Folks, if you still have this mindset that you've got to do certain things in order to be pleasing to God, you don't understand what has happened in your salvation. You're still in bondage. doesn't mean you're not saved. Trust me, for years, even though I got saved in 1973, for years I was under the lie of the enemy that I still had to be pleasing to God. And they say, Jim, what about James? Go with me to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, look at verses uh, 3 and following. It says, You ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose... It is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now, if you were to just read that off the surface, doesn't it sound like you've got to kind of get yourself in the right position before you can come to God? You've got to get serious. You've got to get on your hands and knees, and you've got to come in a certain way. If you read it just like that, it sure does look that way. I'm going to quote to you a verse, though, that most of you know, and we're going to reread it now with that. That verse in our hearts, all right? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says this, without what? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever believes in him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. Keep this in your minds, folks. Lock this in your brain. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So what is God responding to at all times with us? Faith and faith alone. Nothing you do, nothing that your flesh accomplishes, nothing's of your own strength. None of that ever counts before God. Your flesh wants glory. Your flesh wants credit. You want to feel like you've earned part of it. God has set it up that he only responds to faith. So now, keeping this in mind, look again at what James is saying and look closely at verse 6. But he gives what? More grace. And who does he give that grace to? The humble. Those that come to him in faith. And submit to him. Okay, now go back to what we had in our minds here where it talked about how, well, we can go boldly into the presence of God. How many of you have been living the life perfectly? <laughs> Me neither. How can Jim Johnson then, who's just admitted that he's not been living the life perfectly, how can Jim Johnson have the boldness to go into the presence of God? I mean, God's holy. God's perfect. 
He gave me that authority. Why? Because of Jesus and not because of me. And all James is saying is, is folks, look, if you think you're okay when you're not, you're fooling yourself. And you're a friend of the world, you're fooling yourself. And God doesn't like it. You need to humble yourself and come back to him. But don't think that once I've cleaned myself up enough, now I can go into his presence. He gives you grace. You just come back to him. Come near to me. I'll come near to you. But what have I got to do first? No, just come back. Acknowledge what you've done and come back. So you're just saying, if all I do is just come back and you, you, you'll give me grace. Trust me. I don't got to do so many of these and then you'll accept me. I don't got to say this phrase so many times and then you'll let me in. No. Just come. He's responding here to faith. So see, that's the part of the problem is, is you can take scriptures and you can preach them one way or you can preach them another way. But until we're willing to look at the whole of scripture, we've been under bondage under a lot of preachers and teachers and myself as well. For long, I kept focusing on the law part of responding to God instead of the grace understanding of who God really is. Well, Jim, if you preach on grace, everybody will just run amok. Boy, you haven't read your Bible if you think that, because it actually says in 1 John chapter 2 and chapter 5 that the one who's been truly born of God will not go on sinning because the one who's in him is going to keep him protected from the evil one. And if you are saved, you know full what I'm talking about. You still sin and I still sin, but you don't like it, do you? You don't like it when you do. There's something going on inside of you that says that wasn't as much fun as I thought it would be. And I don't feel too good about this. And the good news is, instead of me saying, like I used to, oh God, I'll do this and I'll do this and I'll do this and I'll make it up to you. God says, Jim, just come back. Just come back. So, folks, let's now and then the last thing in verse 13 and then we'll jump into our section here. Uh, Paul then also says this. He says, don't let suffering blind you to these truths. All right. All authority has been given by God to Jesus Christ and it's been accomplished. On top of that, because of this, we have boldness. We can come right into God's presence because of faith in Christ. And don't let suffering cause you to lose sight of this, because sometimes God puts us through stuff and it makes us question his love for us and question his good goodness toward us. Paul says, don't 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 be sorry. Don't worry about the suffering that I'm going through. Don't worry about the suffering I'm going through. This is actually good. Now, I'm going to give you one quick illustration that I heard two Sundays ago by our pastor at First Merritt Island that I'd never heard before. And I think it's so cool. And this will help us as we move into our next section. Go to Hebrews chapter 10 and look at verse 14. Hebrews 10 verse 14. For by a single offering... He, meaning Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Let me say it to you again. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. If you have an NIV, it probably says something along this lines. It says uh, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Does that make anybody else go, which is it? You've been made perfect for all time. You've been made holy. You've been made perfect it's a done deal, yet you're still in the process of being made holy. And it's been hard for us to grasp this, but the pastor of our church used an illustration about this past two Sundays ago, and it's, it's just been one of the coolest ones. Let me share it with you. How many of you remember the old Polaroid cameras? Remember the old Polaroid cameras? You're old. <laughs> you remember you took a picture of that old Polaroid camera, and once you snapped the picture, out came the picture. When the picture came out, was it there? Was it there? It was there, but you couldn't see it. It developed over time. You remember what I'm talking about? Some of us thought if we waved it, it would help. That's what's been accomplished in our lives if you're in Christ. The picture is done. God sees the finished product. You've been made perfect. Now you're in the process of it being seen by everybody else. You see what I'm saying? Stop flapping the picture thinking you've got to help God. You don't need to help him. You need to, just as we saw in Colossians 2.6 now, 
respond with the same kind of faith daily that you had when you came to him for salvation. God, I believe that you're going to give me eternal life through my faith in what Jesus did. I believe that I am not able to come into your presence. I believe that my sin has separated me from you. But I believe Jesus lived a sinful life. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. I believe he rose from the dead. I believe he's God. That's why I'm asking you to have him come into my life. I believe he's alive. And today I trust that you're going to give me salvation. Remember when you did that? In the same way in which you received him as Lord. Now you walk in him. All this other stuff that Paul's saying, I pray that your eyes would be open to. All these things that he's about to specifically pray for each of us is received for the Christian in the same way in which you got saved. You have to hear it. You need to know what it says. You need to believe it. You need to ask him to do it. And he will. Most Christians think that salvation was done when they had the transactional, I prayed the prayer. Oh, there's more. Oh, there's more. And that's why I go to Ephesians 3, verse 14. Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knee before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, there's actually so much right there, we can't even go further unless we look at it. Look how he says this. He says something interesting there. He says, I bow my knee. Now, some of you may not know this, but the Jewish position for prayer was standing. Typically. Now, again, you're going to hear me say this a couple of times as I teach on this section of it here. There's no formula for prayer. Don't let anybody say you got to pray a certain way and you got to close your eyes and all that kind of stuff. Because I could show you places where they close their eyes. I could show you places where they open their prayed with their eyes open. There's no formula. But, but, but the Jewish typical way the Jewish person prayed was standing. We don't have time to turn there, but if you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 26, you go look at where Hannah goes to the temple and she prays for a child. How does Eli know that her mouth's moving, but no sound's coming out? Because he could see her, and he thought she was drunk. But more than that, in verse 26, after the child was born, and she comes back to the temple to dedicate him, she says, I was the one who was standing before you praying. Hannah was praying standing up. It was a very typical Jewish position to pray. The wailing wall, you see them all the time, praying in a standing position. But Paul here says, I bow my knee. Now, is he trying to teach a new way to pray? No, you got to understand something about Paul. Who was Paul an ambassador to? The minister to the who? To the Gentiles. Now, the Gentiles, part of their worship and pagan worship was to bow before these idols. And they would bow before these false gods. And all Paul does is he begins to take what they were doing and show them how to appropriate it to truth. He doesn't say, you got to be a Jew and stand praying the way we do. He says, you want to bow before something? Kneel before the right king. Go with me real quick to Acts chapter 20 and you'll see it even clearer. In Acts 20, the same group of people that this letter started off with, the Ephesian church, as you know, it went on to the others as well. Acts chapter 20, verse 36, he's been meeting with the Ephesian elders because he doesn't think he'll see them ever again. And verse 36, it says, and when he had said these things, Acts 20, verse 36, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on part of all, of all and they embraced Paul and kissed him. Being on sorrow most because of the word that he had spoken that he would not see their face again and they accompanied him to the ship. Here, but Paul is the, the same group of people. He doesn't say, hey, you got to do it like we do it. He took it the way they were doing it. And he just said, let me show you how it applies to truth. Isn't that how he preached to the people in, on Mars Hill? He goes, you guys get all these idols to all these un gods. You even got one to the unknown God. Let me tell you who he is. And he started where, where, where they were and he took them to truth. You know what the church has done? We've gotten like the Jews and say, you, you, you can be a Christian, but you got to do it the way it's done. You got to dress like we dress. You got to do this. You got to use the version of the Bible we use. Oh, take them to truth and let the Lord take it from there. Now, we don't have time to do this, but part of me wanted to go off into a whole fun study of looking at how, what position was Jesus in when he prayed? You know, because we got to figure out how he did it, because that's how we're supposed to do it, you know. Actually, I could show you that in John chapter 11, he actually just looked up to heaven and prayed out loud with his eyes open and, his, and, and he prayed out loud. When he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And what does he say? Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know you always hear me. I just said that for the benefit of the people here that they know you sent me. In that situation, he prayed out loud with his eyes open. Why? Because he wanted the hearers to hear that he was talking to the father and that the father had sent him. Yet if you go down the cross, he did the same thing. If you go to Matthew, though, and you look where Jesus is praying in the garden, the Bible says he fell on his face. 
just went straight to the ground. Folks, your body position doesn't really make a difference in the eyes of God, but sometimes, sometimes our body position just can't help but follow our hearts. So don't get caught up into the fact that Paul said he bowed his knee, because I've heard too many people say, see, Jim, we had prayer time and we all kneeled and you just sat in your chair. I've had people say, Paul bowed his knee, Jim. Paul probably had better knees than Jim. And on top of that, you're taking one verse to build your doctrine. Do you see the danger of one verse to build your doctrine? You gotta look at the whole of scripture. If you do that, you'll find out that the body position really doesn't matter. God looks at where? Your heart. Some of you over the years, as you've gotten older, have felt really bad when there have been prayer times and people have gone to their knees at the pew because the preacher said, everybody just kneel at your seat. And you can't. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I remember when they ordained me, I don't know how many, almost 30 years ago, a little, uh, little less than that. They had Becky and I kneel. And they kneeled us at the front. And then they all came and laid hands on us. And it was a long prayer time. And they were leaning on us. <laughs> Becky was wearing high heels with the pointy toes and her feet were curled up underneath her. By the time the prayer time was over, tears were running down Becky's face and everybody thought, oh, it was such a spiritual moment. <laughs> it was seriously because her feet hurt so bad she couldn't take the pain anymore. And I had to be helped up, literally. And I was a young man at the time. They had to help me up because my knees wouldn't work after that. And they're like, God was all over that. <laughs> We could have used a Dr. Scholes, maybe, but uh, <laughs> folks, don't get, I just say that to you because so many people try to use something like that to, solve, to show you how you ought to do it. Know the whole of Scripture. Know the whole of Scripture. All right. But he says he bows his knee before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, there's something interesting here that I just want to pull out real quick. We're not going to take the time to get into it too much. He says, I'm praying for the church, the family of God, but not only is God the father of the church, God is the father almighty, the everlasting father, the one whom has begotten all mankind and animal kind and even the angels, because actually there are families, if you will, of all kinds of everything he's created. But he uses this term. How does he word it here? He says, every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now that named, didn't that that ring a bell with anybody before we read back in chapter 1? Go back in chapter 1. Verse 20. This power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but in the age to come. I'm not going to go too long on this because I want to keep going. But folks, the names that we have been given... And the name, the naming of people is tied to authority. Typically, who names the child? Parents. Parents. Why? What right did you have to name your child? Well, that's um, God. God gave you authority over your children. And a part of that, it comes with the naming of your children. Actually, in the Jewish culture, it was the man who gave the name. You remember back when Zechariah was to give birth to John the Baptist and he was struck mute because he didn't believe. You know? Well, his wife did. You know what I mean. <laughs> you women are very touchy about that subject. <laughs> I would be too. All right. So, sorry, Elizabeth gave birth. But when it was time to name him, everybody was waiting for Zechariah to say what his name was. And they're all, it's so much fun. They, if you look at that story, you'll see they're all coming up with all these different names. And then the Bible says they made signs to Zechariah to see what he would say. He wasn't deaf. <laughs> he just was mute. But they were all like, hey, John. You know? I'm sorry, Zechariah. And then what does he do? He says, he writes on a tablet, his name is John. How come the final say was given by him? Because he's the authority. You think back in the garden. When God gave Adam authority over all creation and he had the animals, God brought the animals to him and who named them? Ah, folks, I don't think we even have a, an idea of the creativity that we're going to have in heaven and the minds that we're going to have. Can you even fathom naming all the animals? We would probably get like maybe 10 and then we'd be, I'm done. 
But he was, he, back then he had such an amazing mind. But God gave him authority, and a part of that authority, he let Adam name the animals. Now, I'm not even going to get into the fact that he also gave his wife her name. Some of you are going to like that, so I'm going to go there. <laughs> Actually, I'm not afraid to go there, just tonight's not the night. <laughs> but do you understand what I'm saying? When, when Paul says, I am praying to God the Father, by whom everything has been given its name, who's he praying to? The one in the ultimate authority over everything. All right? That's, he says, okay, I'm praying now to the one in ultimate authority over everything. And here's what I'm praying. Now, I'm going to give you the three things that Paul specifically prays for them. We're only going to look at one tonight in the time that we have left. The three things that he prays for. Actually, I'm not going to give you all three. because I, I want you to stay focused on where we're going tonight. I'm just going to give you the first one. Here's the first thing he prays for us. He prays that we would be strengthened in our inner being. Paul says, I'm praying Christians that you in your inner being, in this new creation that you are, in your new man, that you would receive God's strength there. And they say, wait a minute, Jim. Isn't that where Jesus lives? Yeah. Does he have full control? <laughs> I'm sorry. Depends on the day. Yeah. And, and we're going to get into that. That's one of the three things, actually. Actually, I'll give them to you. He prays for inner, inner strength. Inner strength in the inner, strength in the inner man. He prays that we would know the fullness of God's love. And he prays that we would experience the full control of the Holy Spirit. All right. He prays that we would be strengthened in our inner man. We'd experience the full height, width, depth, breadth of the love of God. We'll get into that next week. And that we would experience the full control of the Holy Spirit. Now, you're going to see when we get to the end of this, they're all kind of tied together. And they could all be said the same thing because they're all so intricately tied together. But for tonight, the time that we have left, I want to begin us looking into what Paul specifically prayed for. He said, Christians, I am praying to the full authority over the whole universe. And here's what I'm praying for you. I've already prayed that you'd have your eyes open to what's available. Now I'm praying. Well, how does he word it? Look closely. Look closely. That according to the riches of God's glory. That's a bank account that's pretty big. That he may grant you. You see how it's a gift. It's not something you do. That he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, we're going to get into the rest of that next week. All right. We'd already saw how Paul had already prayed that they would be aware of the power that was available to him. That's back in chapter one, verse 19. Now, Paul gets even more specific. He wants to see God's power in our lives accomplished. Now, Paul's ultimately praying for God's spirit with them to take full control and to manifest his power. The reality has been finished and begun so long ago in salvation. Go to Philippians chapter two, though. Look at verses 12 and 13. We've talked about this before, but I need to kind of reiterate it to you. This strengthening in our inner man can only be done by who? By Christ. You look closely. He says, I'm praying that God would grant you to be strengthened by his power in your inner man. In chapter 2 of Philippians, verse 12, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good purpose. Now, if we were to look at these two verses separately, and they're not separate, the number 13 kind of breaks them up a little bit, they're not separate. But we've looked at them separate. Verse 12 looks like we've got a job to do. Verse 13 says that God does it. Now, which is it? Yes. It's yes, kind of. Well, it's definitely God first in the sense that if you see here in verse 13, he's the one who gives you the will or the desire. You then have to submit to it. So we're going somewhere here. So I'm going to stick. I'm trying to go slow here because I don't want to rush off too much. I want this to sink in because it's taken a long time for it to sink in in my mind and in my heart. 
Remember what Paul's prayed. Pray that the eyes of your heart, that you would receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that God would give you an eye opening. The eyes of your heart should be open, that you would understand the riches of his glory, the wonderful inheritance in the saints, and his mighty power for us who believe. Do you have a certain sin that tends to win? It doesn't have to. Oh, I've tried, Jim. That's the problem. Well, it says to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. Yes, it does. But it's God who works in you, both to give you the desire and then to do it. So what are you saying? Sounds crazy. God initiates this whole process of us, well, let's just use salvation. If we understand, some, most of us hopefully understand how salvation works. If we can grasp that, then we'll be able to grasp how to live in the Spirit, how to walk in the Spirit. Remember in our study of Galatians, Paul said, so I say, if you live by the Spirit, which is those of us who have received Christ, walk in the Spirit or keep in step with the Spirit. And we've always struggled as Christians in that part because every day we wake up and our flesh wants to be uncontrolled again. And we have to lay our flesh, as Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, lay our flesh back on the altar, in order to live, renewing of our mind, live out of the spirit of the new man. Paul says, I, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Yet, the life I now live, I live by faith in the one. Paul says, what you see is actually me learning how to live out of the spiritual me and letting him have control. You don't know how many times I've preached on something similar to this or even just made comments about living according to God's plan by faith. And most Christians I've dealt with over the country say this, we're only human that's the problem. If you're saved, you're not only human. When they say that to me, I always look at them and I try not to be kind of rude about this. I'll say, I'm not. Oh, you think you're special? No, I'm superhuman because God's living within me. Yes, I'm still human. Yes, I have a flesh that still wants to be in control. But if I would let Jesus have control, all the stuff that my flesh doesn't want to do, all the things that I can't do, he does. Amen. And interestingly enough, my flesh follows. He changes my heart. So how do you get saved? God has to initiate the process. Now, please don't think that I'm a Calvinist. I'm not. I believe that God gives everybody an equal. Well, not equal in the sense of they all hear the same amount because the Bible says some people get more light than others. But God reveals himself to all mankind without question. God says, Jesus himself said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them first. He uses all different ways. He uses people like us. He uses creation. He uses his spirit. He uses all sorts of different ways. But God initiates the whole process of salvation. You hopefully understand that, right? But what does God say? God says, hey, Fred, I'm here and I want you to know me. But you got to come find me now. Isn't that interesting how that happens? He does. He reveals himself and he draws you. But he's not going to force himself on you. You now must respond to his plea. You must respond to his spirit's calling. And when you do, in faith, he seals the deal and says, that's great. Now, it's just hard for us because who's doing the work? Is it us or is it him? Well, it's really, really, really him. But somehow, some way, we have a response. We have a responsibility. You can't pull that out of the scriptures. It's there. You're going to find that Jesus stood over Jerusalem and said, if you only let me, I would have. But you weren't willing. So for salvation, God says, I've got it for you. It's here. I want you to respond in faith. I'm going to leave that up to you. I'm going to call you. I'm going to draw you. But if you'll come, I'll give you eternal life. It's a gift. After salvation, this is what most of us Christians have never been taught. We've been taught, okay, now you're saved. Go, sign, you know, go be good and go, go, go work in these committees. <laughs> After salvation, Paul says, it's just like for salvation, there's so much more. And God is saying, I want you to know the power that I have for you. I want you to move into this realm of walking in me. I want you to experience this fullness of my spirit. But you've got to come in faith just like you did for salvation. You've got to say, God, I believe it's true. Did you do it here? That's what he says, work out your salvation with fear and trouble. You've been given salvation. Take it serious. 
Respond. But when you do, you'll find out that it's God who's not only giving you the desire, he then will take over. Paul says, my prayer is that God would grant you from his riches, glorious riches, that he would grant you his strength in your inner being, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I've wrestled over the years of, is the dwelling in your hearts through faith tied to this other verse following or the previous verses? And I think I've come to the conclusion, I think the dwelling in your hearts through faith is tied to this first part of the prayer. You say, well, Jim, what, what does dwelling in my heart through faith mean? Because he already indwells me, doesn't he? You were reading my notes, Sue. It's exactly it. That's it. He's talking about the abiding relationship. Go with me to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, look at verses 1 through 5. Who is Jesus talking to at this point? Just his disciples. He's in, most likely in the garden, or on their way to the garden. They've gone, they've been in the upper room in John 13. He's washed their feet. They've sung a hymn. In chapter 14, he says, I'm going away, but I'm prepared a place for you. I'll come back and get you. And they were like, where? And all that stuff. And chapter 15 either happens after they finished in the upper room having the Passover meal, either on the way to the garden or they're in the garden. And most likely it's just him and his disciples. It's a very intimate setting. And he says, I'm the true vine and my father is the vine dresser or the gardener. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. Now, I, I, one of those places, I'm not, it, it's an okay translation. It's not the best. We don't have time to get into it. But if you want to read Bruce Wilkinson's uh, uh, Secrets of the Vine book, he breaks it out really, really well. And the fact that that word that's translated takes away, you'll also find in Matthew chapter 27, verse 32, where it says that uh, they had Simon carry or bear Jesus's cross. It's a picture of picking something up. We also see it in Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 14, right around verse 20, where it says after the feeding of the 5,000, the 12 disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of leftover pieces. That word picked up is the exact same Greek word, aero, A-I-R-O, and it could be translated lifts up. Now, those who know anything about growing grapes, when you've got a vine that's growing or trying to grow in grapes and a branch goes down along the ground, you don't cut it off right away. You're, as a vine dresser, you're going to pick it up, you're going to wash it off, tie it up on the trellis in hopes that it gets light and air. Your first thing is, if it's not producing fruit, is to help it so that it will. And it's a sense of picking it up. A lot of Bibles have translated that takes away because it could mean that. But that Greek word is used in a couple other places to say pick up. And I think that what Jesus, I don't think the first thing Jesus said to them in this intimate setting was, hey, if you're not producing fruit, I'm cutting you off. Right. He said, hey, Branch, it's in me that's not producing fruit. I think he picks you up. All right. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, which in that Greek word translated prunes, by the way, is another picture of cleansing, that it may bear more fruit. Already, look at what he says. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Did you catch that? You're already clean. We're in that... You've been made perfect forever, but you're now in the process of being made holy. By the way, did y'all ever have some of those Polaroid pictures that never fully developed right? The picture was there, but for some reason it didn't, we didn't get to see it. That's a lot of Christians, unfortunately. They're saved. Picture was taken. But the world didn't get to see it much. He says, you're already clean. And so he's speaking to people that are already clean. They're already saved. And then he says to them this. Abide in me. This is an intimate relationship, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This is what Paul's praying for. We'll get into it more next week and we'll start drawing this to a close. He says, my prayer is that God would grant you from his riches, his glorious riches, a strengthening in your inner man, his power, so that Christ won't be someone that shows up every now and then, even though he's in you. But that Christ would dwell in your heart through your faith in him. Now, he says, 
My prayer is that he'd be given full control. Now I'm going to ask you an honest question. If I were to say to you right now, you give God a blank piece of paper and say, God, I am giving you full control. Write whatever you want to happen next in my life on that piece of paper. Doesn't a little wave of fear come over your thought? We know in our hearts that's how we're supposed to be. But if we were to actually do it and say, God, here it is. Whatever you want to do, go ahead. I'm giving you full permission. There's a little wave of fear that comes through our hearts. We're going to deal with that next week. I think before we can really fully experience what we're looking at here, we have to understand the second part of his prayer. To really understand the height, the width, the depth, the breadth of the love of God. Because I think if we really understood the height, the width, the depth, the breadth of the love of God, we could give him that blank piece of paper. Perfect love casts out all fear. As we grow in him, that little twinge of fear gets shorter and shorter. You're right. Before we say, okay, yes. though you slay me, yet will I trust you. Exactly. And that's part of the whole process that we're going to be going through now. It's a growing it's a learning to lead. Remember Jesus said, you're weary, have laid, and come to me, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn of me. This is going to be a process, folks, now. This is why the people that have taken some of these truths and run too far, where they just say, you just pray a certain prayer, you go to a certain place, and a certain man will pray for you, and the Spirit of God will just get dumped on you, and then all of a sudden you'll be walking in the Spirit. You ever notice how those people don't seem to last real long? That's not what the Bible teaches. It's not a one-time experience. It's a growing in your knowledge of him. But I just want to ask you this question. Are you even seeing his spirit begin to make these changes in you? Are you seeing his spirit produce to your surprise? Joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, evidence of his spirit. If you let him dwell through the power of him, Oh, how, how do you do it? Same way in which you get saved. Lord, I, <laughs> I would like to see Paul's prayer for me accomplished. Um, from what I understand, it's something you give me. And I don't have it unless I receive it from you. It's available. I believe it. Lord, start changing Jim Johnson. By the way, this isn't just theory. Over the last two months in a certain area of my life, I have been actually putting this into practice. I'm not going to tell you what it is because it's none of your business. But I'm going to tell you this much. In an area of my life that has been a continual struggle, an area of my life that I've tried to have victory for many, many years, I have begun to say, Lord, you said you would do this. You said you would give me victory. I believe it. And when those temptations have come, I have gone to him, not to me trying to come up with a way to not do it. I've gone right to him. And folks, I can't tell you anything except supernaturally it goes. He gets the victory. I don't know how he's doing it. And I don't care, because if I did, I'd try to duplicate it and sell it. <laughs> but let me just tell you, my prayer is for you, that you would experience in your inner being the real power of God that changes people. And that you would no longer say, I'm getting better. Because it ain't you. Jesus is doing it. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, there's so much more because it all just also ties together. Bring us back next week as we look at the next part of the prayer. As it moves into the third part of the prayer as well. Lord, <laughs> it's kind of hard that uh, you're, you're asking us. Uh, Paul's prayer is that we would understand the height, the width, the depth, and the breadth of your love. And your word also says that it, that's impossible for us to know. So I guess, Lord, instead of us trying to find where it ends, may we just dive into it and swim in it and receive it because Lord I know in my life that's where I've been getting the victory is is knowing how much you love me and how this isn't a test to see whether or not I'm going to be good enough for your grace but actually that as I have believed in you and your grace you have been blessing 
in ways that I can't even fully describe. And Lord, I pray that my wife and my kids and people that come in contact me, with me would just continue to just see you. Oh, Lord, there are days that we don't have full victory, and that's okay because you give more grace, as we just saw tonight in the book of James. Uh, if, if we didn't need more grace, you wouldn't give more grace. We need a lot of grace. But, Lord, our purpose for doing this study of Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians as we go through these books is that we would move away from being Christians as we've always been into what does it really mean? To walk with Christ? What does it really mean to be in Christ? What has already been accomplished and what authority is already there? And what have we been trying to do in our own strength that you just say, let me do it? And Lord, move us into that realm and bring us back hungry for more. We pray this in your name. Amen.